Coming up next, the bookening reads a book that trounces Winnie the Pooh from here to Sunday. It's E.B. White's Charlotte's Web. Welcome to The Booking. My name is Nathan Alberts, and I'm your humble and obedient host, Agent Provocateur. Look it up if you don't know what it means. I decided that'd be a thing I'd say every once in a while, so that's what I'm doing, because I think it's cute. But your opinion may vary. Welcome to the podcast, Brandon Chastine, scholar who's a baller of reading. Hey. Your opinion may vary on whether you like being called scholar who's a baller of reading. It may vary. It's better from... than PhD, ABD. Yeah, that's true. Brandon, you know who else is here? Is it A.A. Milne? <laughs> nope. <laughs> Ah, his, his initials start with J-K-M. J-K-M. Mm-hmm. J-K. Just kidding. <sighs> Just kidding. Just kidding, man. Just kidding, man. Hey, that's that's not bad. That's, that's a good name. Bad. I'm good at coming up with acronyms. Yeah. He's wearing the cap. He's wearing the Cubs cap. He loves the Cubs, apparently. Hate the Cubs. Oh, is that He adores the Cubs. Though, right? <laughs> Hate the Cubs. Am I insane that that's a Cubs cap? It is, in fact, the Cubs hat. Okay. The Cubs are a basketball team. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the great <laughs> Cubs. They I, well, I hate the Chicago Cubs, but yeah. the Smithville Cubs. I uh-huh. love, I love there the There we go. Cubs. Now, who plays yeah. for the Smithville Cubs? Anybody one, I know? One Peter Menzel. One Peter Menzel. Now, that Menzel there, Brandon, that is a yeah. crucial clue in the M for oh, JKM. I can bet. You, can you guess what the M stands for? I still don't know, Nathan. Sorry. <laughs> it's Mensel. Oh, Mensel. You should commit. So it's, oh, it's, it's Jacob Mensel. That's not how you say that. Sapaku? Sapuko. Sapuko. I don't know. Sapuko. You should ritually disembowel yourself. Next Patreon video. <laughs> <laughs> if we make it to $1,000 a month. Brandon whoa. will. No, no, no. no. Folks, no. Brandon's not going to ritually disembowel himself. Brandon is going to be the most ritually undisemboweled person on the planet. Yes. Because Brandon, he loves his life. He loves the bookening. Brandon, let's cut this nonsense short and introduce our third person. Why don't you do the honors? Yeah, he is the pastor who's a master of reading. How do you suppose he feels about that appellation after all these years? He probably likes it. You like it? Um, Stockholm Syndrome, uh, at least? Yeah, I'm more comfortable with it than I've Stockholm Syndrome. Ben? Right. How's that? <laughs> I'm more least no shock. I've had it. to have all sorts of names. No, I own it. I I am a master right. of reading. You're the pastor. And I master also of reading. am a pastor. Yeah. I dare say, if I were you, I would like your titles on this show better than your titles on Sound of Sanity. Yeah, I think that that's true. I don't have a title on Sound of no, Sanity. No, you've got you've got no titles. I don't care for any of the I, titles on Sound of Sanity, but I don't know what to do about it. It's just what happens. I can't control it. CEO is weird. Yeah. I, but I it's true. Kind of weird about it. It's, yeah, CEO, it doesn't really, it's not that it's wrong. It's just, it doesn't set up the show properly. We should come up with uh, something better for Sound That's of Sanity. That's related or, that yeah. just helps. I, I think just Pastor Jacob Menzel is probably, is what I've been leaning towards. It's probably the way to go. Yeah, I think you're probably um, right about that. But, and then sometimes I say associate pastor, which is just confusing for people. So, yeah. I mean, it's also, also true. Yeah, there, there's been what? at least once that you said the associate pastor. I'm like one of five. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, the associate, associate pastor, pastor of. And then I've, I always say of Warhorn Media, so it makes it sound like Warhorn Media is a church. It's just confusing. Yeah. CEO of Warhorn Media, associate pastor of Clear Note Church. Let's figure out all of Sound of Sanity's issues right now. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, go listen to it, people. Yeah, no, it's good. It's uh, uh, The last been, episode was really good. Yeah, we've been trying to improve it. We've been trying to add some production value. The booking, it's always just going to be three friends talking about books, and I'm proud of that. I love it. The Sound of Sanity, three 
acquaintances at best. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why we needed the production value. We right, didn't have yeah. the friendship holding it together. It's like if you don't have a Brandon, then you got to bring a ton of production value. Right. You got to throw yeah, in yeah, the music need, and the You bells either need a Brandon whistles. or you need, yeah, all the bells wow. and right. whistles. It costs a lot of Brandon money to compensate for not having Brandon. <laughs> I am the production value. <laughs> and yet, huh. we don't pay Brandon at all. No, we don't. <laughs> no. <laughs> but we certainly do pay, pay for not having Brandon. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> sure. No, we pay actual dollars for the fact that we don't have you on Sound of Sanity. Yeah. Oh, you love our trusty engineer. He's oh, a yeah, good no, guy. No, 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 don't. He's I, a great guy. Yeah, I love Ben. He's a, he's a wonderful man. This last episode was funny. Yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> listen to Sound of Sanity, folks. Do it. Listen. Um, but in the meantime, we're talking about E.B. White. You know what I'm going to do? Because someone told me. Now, I don't, I'm not promising to do this every week, but just for fun. We'll do donor shout-outs like maybe halfway through the episode. We'll, we'll, we'll have a little break. We'll do donor shout-outs. But right huh. now, we're just going to get into it. We're going to talk about E.B. White himself. Oh, I was not ready. The man, the myth, the legend. Yeah. Edward Bear White. Is that's, that what it stands for? That's what it stands for, yeah. True enough. I have no idea what it really stands for, actually. Uh, I'm sure we could ask Wikipedia. No, no! Brandon's firing his guns into the air. Bang, bang. He's the contextual Texan. This yeah. is part of the show where Brandon, he's from Texas, and he's going to offer some <laughs> much-needed context on this work. And so, yeah, Brandon, take it away. Uh, if, uh, I guess we didn't say we're talking about Charlotte's Web by E.B. White. I guess we did say at the beginning, but now I'm saying it again. We're talking about Charlotte's Web by E.B. White, one of our favorite children's books. I'm just going to spoil that right now. I dare say I haven't asked either of these other gentlemen, but I think I'm safe to say this is one of our favorite children's books yeah edward bear white is that why you're giving me the thumbs up i'm giving you the thumbs up too but people can't hear it whoosh ellen ellen brooks ellen brooks Brooks. hi yeah i was right i just didn't remember the middle name no wonder he went by eb ellen brooks it's like clive staples yes if my name was clive staples or ellen brooks i would go by my initials he kind of looked like um walt disney didn't he yeah a little bit a little bit he didn't have a mustache did he no, E.P. White did have a mustache. He did? Okay. In so this he... picture, at least I'm looking at, where he's looking at me doe-eyed. Mm-hmm. He was a great writer and a good friend, that E.P. Yeah. White. Yeah, yeah. Brandon, let's talk about him. Let's get right to it. Let's give let's the people some it. value so, for his, um, money. So let me just uh, quickly up top tell people some of the books I used. Charlotte's, Charlotte's Web. Web. Yeah, so, so some of the books that, uh, obviously, I read Charlotte's Web. Mm-hmm. I read The Story of Charlotte's Web by Michael Sims. Would you recommend that people read The short Story of Charlotte's Web by Michael Sims? Yeah, actually, it was pretty well written. It was good. I did notice, looking over it today, that he starts a lot of his paragraphs with Andy. <laughs> Andy, <laughs> Andy, Andy. So he might not have been E.B. White caliber of a writer. You know, when I was young, this is a complete tangent, but I don't care. When I was young... I learned not to begin a sentence with the same word, Mm -hmm. and I subscribe to that rule. Since that time, I think it's a good rule to teach high schoolers, but since that time, I've seen a lot of great writers disregard flagrantly that rule. And I've come to think it might not be. It's a good thing to kind of get in, in, in young people's heads, but then... It's a good rule to know when to break. Even an amateur should sometimes just be allowed to break. If you're just writing a story of what someone did and you want to start a couple sentences in a row with he, for example, he did this, he did that. It's fine. I don't think you should feel bad about that. Especially if you're a genius. Especially if you're a genius. Geniuses can just do what they want as far as I'm concerned. There are rules that I would say you break at your own peril. That rule, I would say you break at not that much peril, little peril maybe, but you know, it's a good, it's a good guideline. I either had that own, the same conclusion or somebody told me that. So it is a rule yeah. that people should follow in general. Generally speaking. Yeah. But generally speaking, if you're also really talented. 
You know who breaks that rule a lot that we'll be reading later this year is Mr. Raymond Chandler. Does he? He doesn't seem to care much for that rule at all. And he gets away with it completely, as we'll see. But we'll talk more about style. I mean, you can't yes. get away from E.B. White without talking about style. I don't know how much we'll get to it in this episode, but in our in our Charlotte's Web run, we'll definitely talk a lot about style because yep. how can you talk about E.B. White without doing it? Anyway, Brennan, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, so the story of Charlotte's Web is by Michael Sims. It's good. I also read the collected volumes of essays of E.B. White. I actually listened to them, which was a different experience reading them. And I also read quite a few of his letters. So just a pro tip for people who really want to research authors. One of the I think I've mentioned this before. One of the best ways to get to know an author is to read their letters. Absolutely. And we will have one of the best collections of letters coming up with Flannery O'Connor's yes. letters. Actually, Mr. Raymond Chandler, again, if I may, I'm sorry to be a Raymond Chandler fan. Does he have a good volume of letters? Oh, yeah. It's, it's one of the best. I love right. it. Huh. I've got it. I read it for pleasure. That's Do you how really? That's good it is. Yeah. You'll have to let me borrow it. Yeah, no, I will. You're more than welcome to it. Anyway. So there we have it. Those are the books that we're getting started with. So we always start with biography and then let that take us where it will, like the summer wind taking Charlotte's little babies away. Mm-hmm. Get your balloons ready, guys. <laughs> or like the wind blowing across the lake in E.B. White's essay, Once More to the Lake, which I looked up the title to, which is definitely... Once More to the Lake, That's yeah. an essay that everyone should read. Oh, man, it? yeah. So That's good. the one we read that at... We read that when we class. taught a class. The three of us taught a class together. We read that essay. Did those? Did our students care at all? Probably not. Probably not. But should they have? Uh, yeah, they yeah. should have. Uh, yeah. We read that year. We read. Keep interrupting. No, interrupt away. We read Hills with White Elephants mm-hmm. or Hills Like White Elephants by Hemingway. Mm-hmm. We read that. And we read what's the famous, what's the most famous C.S. Lewis essay? Weight of Glory. Weight of Glory. We read those three things. And I dare say those were three, those are three of the most fantastic things we could have read. I want to say E.B. White might be the number one. He probably was the number one. C.S. Lewis was right up there with him. Yeah. But Weight of Glory uh, gets real weird at the end. But E.B. White runs away with it. Yeah, E.B. E. White gets weird at the end of that essay and pulls it off magnificently. And then what was the other one I said? Oh, Hills with Like White Elephants is fantastic, but it's kind of depressing. So I think all Hemingway. Yeah. I mean, he's de- he's a depressing guy. Right. But if you want to read the best thing that Hemingway ever wrote, it's probably Hills with Like White Elephants, I would say. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, you could argue for certain sections from For Whom the Bell Tolls, but you got to put up with a lot of... The tree at the end. Yeah. <laughs> the, the tree at the end, Jake's favorite section. Anyway, I'm sorry, Brandon. I'll stop interrupting. No, this is great. Keep going. What else do you have, Nathan? I got nothing. Go ahead. You're the, you're the Texan today. Mm, no, no, no. Go ahead. Okay. So E.B. White was born in 1899 in Mount Vernon, New York. One year before the year 1900. That's right. And right around the period of a lot of authors we've read. So he would have been right during the period of C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. Ernest Hemingway. Who else have we read? Steinbeck. Steinbeck. In fact... Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath would be a controversy that figures fairly prominently in an essay that I should have mentioned that Jake sent out, which is was a great essay to read. Yeah. If you want to see kind of the place that the whites had in the development of children's literature yeah, mm-hmm. and the history of children's literature. A little literature. New Yorker article. Yeah. What was that? We should just tell people what was it called? It was on a woman named Virginia Moore. It was, head wasn't honcho. Virginia Moore. It was... Uh, Something Moore. The Lion and the Mouse, The Battle That Reshaped Children's Literature by Jill Lepore. Carol Moore. Anne Carol Moore. Anne Carol Moore. I don't know why I thought Virginia This woman, like, with an ironclad fist, ruled children's literature for a number of years. And who stood up to her but the great Edward Bear White himself? Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating because... And wife. And wife. And Mrs. Catherine 
white. What you see is the, the development of children's literature in the setting of the libraries. That were, mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's a fascinating read. And we'll talk a little bit more about it here in a minute. Yeah. From uh, July 2008, in uh, issue of The New Yorker. The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to The New Yorker here yes, in a minute, indeed. too, because indeed. that's a very prominent figure in this story. So he was born to a wealthy family. They lived near Long Island in New York in a very nice home that he got to grow up in. His father was a businessman, a I think a vice president, actually, in a prominent piano firm in New York City. What does a prominent piano firm do? Manufacture They pianos, manufacture pianos. There you go. Yep. His mother was the daughter of William Hart, who was a famous painter. And you can actually, so I looked up some William Hart paintings. And so his, his, his grandfather was a painter of these landscapes. And so I'm just clicking through some of these. I mean, they're very, they have a lot of trees, but mountains and streams and rivers. And they're very American in mm-hmm. the feel that they provoke or evoke, not provoke. And so that was his grandfather. His mother was a defender of the arts against the sort of snobbish, uh, sentiments of the upper class at the time. And so uh, one of the things that actually that essay that Jake pointed us to po- uh, shows us is that the way that people looked at art in fiction, especially, wasn't favorable at the time. Right. In fact, who one of the guys who founded the li- one of the libraries in New York said that he wouldn't have given that money if he had known that people were just going to go to the library to right. check out fiction. The percentage of fiction that ended up in the library was an offense to him. Yeah, the percentage that was checked out of the library. Right. It was just an offense. And so people, that's not what people looked at highly at the time. Mm-hmm. You can see that in Jane Austen, too. Fiction was more of a woman's thing. Right. And so it was just like music was more of a woman's thing. Right. It was their, it was their purview. Men had the world of business, and that was their purview. But E.B. White's home life, was very, home life was very different than that. His father himself was loved story, loved literature and things, and so encouraged E.B. White's um, early love of books. Um, he had actually he had a happy home life. They lived in a fairly wealthy neighborhood just off of Long Island. I think this is important because I think E.B. White's wealth and his privilege would play a large prominent role mm-hmm. in the way that we should look at him. I'm not a socialist. Right. I never claimed to be a socialist, but I do think the class. What? Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I do. I know I do Texas have a Stalin. Texas is known for its. Uh... <laughs> we found out last time I'm African American. I also do have a Stalin mustache, <laughs> but <laughs> and drape myself in the hammer and the scythe, whatever that yeah, is. Absolutely. That flag, yeah. Yep. But yep. I'm not a socialist. <laughs> I just got myself off track there. <laughs> oh, so, but I do think, I mean, class matters. Yeah. You know, the way that somebody's born, if they're born rich, it's going to f- flavor the rest of their life. Sure, sure, sure. It's going to flavor their expectations. The problem with a lot of socialist thinking is people can become very bitter at the fact that Donald Trump had a wealthy father mm-hmm. and that that gave him privilege. Who wouldn't expect that to give him privilege yeah. and to shape the way that, the shape the opportunities they have? That's right? example. Part of the motivation for becoming wealthy is to afford your children privileges that you never had. Exactly. Right. And so why shouldn't um, they be the bene- why shouldn't your children be the beneficiaries of your hard labor? Yeah, have right. a good education. And so if you read your Jane Austen, you know it affords them responsibilities. That's that right. Children don't. That's right. Darcy. Darcy. So C.S. Lewis, his father was a barrister, right? Mm-hmm. Wealthy. Sure, because of that, C.S. Lewis had all sorts of opportunities to go and read the sorts of books that all these classical educated people just wish that they understood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't help myself. Sorry. Was it last episode that we went off on Lewis again? 
I think we brought Lewis in last episode to kind of help us. Was it the movie episode? There's, yeah. There's, we we brought Lewis in to help us. We've been finding too many opportunities to go in on this. No, we're done, folks. We're done. We're not going to talk about Lewis. I think we've we've come to, I've come to peace with Lewis. Mm-hmm. I know where Lewis is useful, but I also know where he's really nasty. Right. And if you're going to be blind about the fact that he was really nasty, then whatever. Yeah. He had some bad stuff. I guess it's been a few weeks since our Sound of Sanity episode on Jordan Peterson came out. That maybe has the last major Lewis slam. But that's all, folks. Yeah, but it, is it, it all? Well, for for now. You I know. mean, he did try to equate pedophilia with uh, some beautiful romantic love. A touch of the divine. A touch of the divine. Yeah. So I mean, that's pretty gross. Yeah. But good. we can let's just let's it's just move good. on. Pederasty, I think, was the word you were looking for. Pederasty. Pedophilia. Yeah. Where were we? Oh, oh, his wealth. Yes, his wealth. Yeah. So that matters, and it gives you opportunities. Of course, it gives you opportunities. I think that most of the major writers in the early twentieth century. They had good opportunities. They got to go to Harvard. They got mm-hmm. to go to Cornell. Sure. And so that's the college that E.B. White was he was educated at. Was at Cornell. It would be there that he would study under Professor Strunk, mm-hmm. who at the time sold for like fifteen cents in the bookstore a forty-three page volume of his rules for good writing. Mm. Which there's a lot of foreshadowing in this mm-hmm. context. That's going to be important later on. So, no, <laughs> no, yeah, nobody's ever heard of Strunk. Nah. <laughs> what? After he graduated in 1921 from Cornell, he would for a while work for some firms doing some writing, some copy work. He would do some advertising work for a firm. I forget the name of the firm. And and finally, he would make his way to New York. And his dream was always to be a writer. In Cornell, he was the editor of the school newspaper. It's actually pretty interesting because apparently that newspaper was one of the only, also in the area in Ithaca, was one of the only newspapers that was part of the Associated Press. Mm. And so they would actually get live feeds like through Morse code and stuff. Telegraph. Telegraph, yeah. About major world events that were happening. And so he got to put those into his paper and actually announce those to the area. And so he was a naturally shy boy. He was very reserved. He was terrified of the idea of having to talk in public. So he was never going to be a public figure. Mm-hmm. Like he was not going to be a politician. But as he went through his years at Cornell, he gained more confidence. At the end, he was part of frats. Yeah, I think he was actually the president of his fraternity. And getting some more confidence so that he would be able to be the kind of guy who would have the nerve to go to New York City, send stuff in to a young magazine called Legend, The New Yorker. Yes. And so, but before we get there, mm-hmm. quick pause. Because I know I've said in the past that a lot of, you can never gauge when the genius of a writer is actually going to show up. Mm-hmm. Some don't show up until their 30s or 40s. Who are we reading that was kind of like, oh, Conrad was kind of like that. Yeah. There was somebody else that was actually pretty surprising. I can't remember. They Maybe. came out of the gate strong? Uh, well, Tolstoy was kind of a little later as right. well. I mean, Austin died by the time she was 42. And so, I mean, yeah. So when did Ishiguro? Uh... Ishiguro, that's right. He was kind of later in life as well. E.B. White, not necessarily that way. He published his first poem when he was nine years old, <laughs> won a prize, then won another prize in, at the age of 12. He sent in some publications and essays to this little magazine at the time, which was called St. Nicholas. I bring this up because, actually, my dissertation, one of the things I was going to look at was the whole magazine publishing world and how that established careers and sort of helped set the culture of American writing at the time. Mm -hmm. And so this was one of the early instances of it. It was this little kid's magazine. It would publish like, what's that magazine that, uh, Highlights? Yeah. Highlights Highlights is definitely a magazine. Yeah, I think it was kind of like Highlights. It would publish interesting things that kids might find interesting. (laughs) Interesting things that kids might find interesting. Believe that or not. (laughs) 
like how to light a fire, sure, th- like, things about animals, just the cool little stuff like that. But then once a year, or maybe I actually think once a month, they would have competitions where you would send your stuff into what was called the St. Nicholas Club, mm-hmm. and then they would publish your work. E.B. White won for an essay that he wrote. I think he only won once. But there was like Edna St. Vincent Millay. Uh, St. Vincent Millay. Mm-hmm. She was a prominent, she became one of the most prominent prominent sonnet writers of the 1900s. In fact, none other than Richard Wilbur said that she was probably the best mm-hmm. sonneteer. And we're reading a book about Wilbur the pig. Of Wilbur the pig. It all begins, it all, it all it all comes begins back. to make sense. Yeah. Fun fact, we've got a friend who's having a piece of art being published in uh, Cricket magazine. Who? Claudio. Oh, really? Yeah. You guys know Cricket? No. No. Well, I guess it's not that exciting then, but it's like kind of like highlights. Like Only it was the thing that I grew up with, so it's fun that That's pretty cool. Got an Congratulations, Claudio. That's uh, doing some art for Cricket. Um, there's also Spider Magazine. I think that's for younger people, which Charlotte is none other than a spider. So this is all tying together. Y'all need, to go, y'all need to check out the artwork of Claudio Molina. Yes. He's amazing. Yes. Just type his name in. It's C-L-A-U-D-I-O. I really like Claudio's artwork. Molina spelled just like Alfred, the great Alfred Molina from Spider-Man 2. Uh, he was at the beginning of Raiders of Lost Ark. He he tried to portray Indiana Jones. He got himself stabbed by a yeah. by, a, by a gate, a spike gate. But not Claudio. But not Claudio. Not no, that he, Claudio. He did some great art. But hey, Claudio Molina, mm-hmm. Garth Williams, another foreshadowing. Yes. <laughs> all sorts of foreshadowing. It's all tied And what's together. funny is that E.B. White was not one for foreshadowing. <laughs> so, <laughs> In the spirit of not E.B. White. Yeah. Lots of foreshadowing. Oh, dun, dun, dun. We'll have a cliffhanger at the end of this context oh. when we suddenly break into donor shout outs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you better believe we will. So anyways, <laughs> so the St. Nicholas Magazine, some fun, some other fun people that got published there. So we had Edna St. Vincent Millay. She probably means nothing to a lot of people. I did want to mention Richard Wilbur, though, because pro tip, go read some Richard Wilbur. He's fantastic. One of the last truly great conservative poets died recently. Yeah. just Broke my heart. Long Jake long. broke the news to me that he was dead. Yeah. So... <laughs> Thanks a lot, Jake. Yeah. He Somebody had to Dennis do it. Johnson had to go and die. Yeah. Wouldn't you rather me do it than... Yeah, I would, actually. That was a better way for it to happen. I keep getting myself sidetracked. <laughs> Sorry, this is going <laughs> to be <laughs> a slightly discursive, don't, uh, whatever this segment's called. Don't, don't this is fun. Oh, so some other, pe- so, yes. some other uh, fun things. So F. Scott Fitzgerald apparently won for a photograph that he took, and William Faulkner won for a drawing. Still for this uh, St. Nicholas Magazine. So they were famous for publishing the works, even if they weren't the writings of a lot of young people who have become famous authors. Hmm. Weird. Yeah. So we have St. Nicholas Magazine, and then we're going to... So it's not so discursive and rambling, see? We have St. Nicholas. That provides the perfect foil for what would then be the stepping stone to E.B. White's career, Mm. The New Yorker. And I don't think we've ever talked about The New Yorker before. No. Is it safe? We should we should just do a mini baggage here. Is it safe to say we all like the New Yorker magazine? Yeah. Yep. I, I just actually read say. a really fantastic article out of the New Yorker. I, I don't get it anymore. I used to get it. My father-in-law, thank you, used to get it for me for my birthday until I asked him to stop. Mm. Hmm. So. Pro tip: What you should do if you are have ten bucks a month to spare is sign up for Texture, which is a app on your phone that allows you access to all kinds of magazines, including things like Reuters and Entertainment Weekly and uh, a lot of the Condé Nast stuff, such as New Yorker. Yeah. Wired. <laughs> Wired. Yeah, for sure. So I would recommend though a I recent su- article. I've unsubscribed to the New Yorker in the last year. Yeah. I, l- I love it, but I just. I never read it. When I, when it was coming to my house every other week, I, I just never had the time. Yeah, it's That's hard. Kind of and I'd love to have space in my life again for 
a luxury like the New Yorker, but that's what it feels like is it's a luxury Many that I just can't afford porch and drink brandy. And yeah, I've got, I've day. got seven kids and sports and, yep. Warren, and, me, Warren, and, and let me tell you, you're not going to take the New Yorker to for goodness Smithfield sake. diamonds. I know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no. One of the reasons I pretty much the same reason as Jake don't get the New Yorker anymore is because I just don't have time for it. I would feel guilty for it piling up. Mm-hmm. Yep. But then also the fiction and the poetry just aren't good anymore. No, the fiction yeah. and the poetry have stunk for many years. Those now. are the primary reasons I used to want to get it. Mm-hmm. Same. Because I wanted to see what were people doing with poetry. I think I read some of my stupid early poetry. Mm-hmm. Like back when I thought I needed to ape everybody else. Yeah. And so a lot of that was just me either trying to ape T.S. Eliot before I found the book you make fun of, but I think is great. Possum's Book of Practical Cats. Oh, no. I, <laughs> you just reminded me. Stop it. Alone in the he had nothing to do with that. <laughs> he was dead long before that happened. It is great. Yeah, yeah no. It's, that was it's, an it's excellent wonderful. gift, by the way. Yeah, Thank yeah. you for that. Such no, a, yeah. the, the cats come dancing out on the stage. My, they my sing kids love it. Yeah, I'm giving, I'm giving a lot of pro tips today. <laughs> so go, if you don't have a volume of Possum's Book of Practical Cats, go and get it. Because yeah. everybody thinks of T.S. Eliot as the writer of The Wasteland. Mm-hmm. But you get that book... And it just, it's it makes you love T.S. Eliot. charming. Yeah. And you can get a, a, a double disc of Cats, the musical by Andrew Lloyd <laughs> You can Weber. stop right there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to make fun of Brandon's love I, of I think it's, I it's, think it's, it's funny. It is truly wonderful. And, uh, and it's, what was the other thing we were saying? Oh, there is one good person that still submits fiction to The New Yorker. His name is Stephen Milhauser. We read a little novel yeah. by him called, uh, what's it, uh, Martin Dresler. Interesting fact, The New Yorker never published any Flannery O'Connor stories. Really? Not a one, eh? Not a one. I think uh, it makes sense. As a refusal or? I think she may have, I'll, I'm, I'm going to make that a point. Don't yes, let we'll me forget. Out. I need to find out. Did she actually ever try to? I'm, I'm going to guess she would have preferred something like Oxford. She was mainly published in like the Southern Review. And yeah, the, she Southern got a Review lot of stuff and... published in the Atlantic. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, the, the Atlantic would be a good think about it. Well, the New Yorker, weren't they famous? I mean, I guess Flannery O'Connor would have been a little bit after that, but they didn't publish a lot of the more famous people like Fitzgerald. They may have done one piece from... They're real famous. Anyway. Their first famous person they really championed was J.D. Salinger. Right. And but a lot did, of people they found and developed, like anyone that was popular when the New Yorker started, they wouldn't have been able to afford and they would have, they, they kind of invented this humorous New Yorker style that yeah. people like Hemingway wouldn't have, or uh, what's his face, uh, jazz age guy what's his name Fitzgerald Fitzgerald yeah he wouldn't have necessarily been not the Nintendo character but then they started farming from NYU and Iowa yeah they started farming talent from there right yeah right so John Updike, um, one of my favorites, Dennis Johnson. Sure. They all wrote for the New Yorker. Oh, man. Yeah. You still need to let me borrow that, by the yeah, way. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm almost done with that. I'll you just, just yeah. give it to him next. Yeah, I will. So, yeah. So what you're saying right there, that's kind of... So the, from the New Yorker was started in 1924 by this guy called Harold Ross, Ross who came yeah. from uh, Colorado. Fun character to... Sorry to keep interrupting, but he's, he's just a fun character. He is a fun character. Him. He was a journalist, yeah. but he reminded me a lot of Ezra Pound. Mm-hmm. And so why... I mentioned Ezra Pound is because 1925, I think, in the bookending, I've mentioned a lot, quiz for all the bookending listeners, the most important year in literary history, 1922, when Ulysses, Mrs. Dalloway, and The Wasteland were all published mm-hmm. at the same time. One of the most important years. It's not the most important year, but it's one of those watershed moments. And so The New Yorker was created right around that same time during high modernism when it was coming into the forefront. And The New Yorker couldn't be further from high modernism. So Ezra Pound was the father of vorticism, which was what would become modernism. And he was all about abstractness. He was all about the image, the hard, cold image, all these things we've talked about with modernism mm-hmm. in response to the war 
World War I. 1924, when Harold Ross came, he was more of a journalist coming out of Colorado. And what he wanted, I actually have, he wanted the New Yorker not to be edited for the old lady in, how do you say it? Dubuque? Dubuque? Dubuque. Dubuque. It's Dubuque. Dubuque, isn't it? Yeah. In other words, and this is what James Thurber, one of the early writers for the New Yorker said, what he thought Ross's intentions were. He wanted to have the magazine to have an offhand, chatty, informal quality. Nothing was to be labored or studied, arty, literary, or intellectual, mm-hmm. which really is the exact opposite of modernism. Mm-hmm. So yeah, The Wasteland, which is very arty, very studied, very literary, and very intellectual. Right. And then you have The New Yorker, which was going to be the, the exact opposite of that. Now, if our people that are listening don't know The New Yorker, they may be laughing at us because they may think there's nothing more arty and formal and snotty and which is just than the New Yorker. You have to go and read the New Yorker. I think people think that the articles are long, but what's, if you like to read, there. I mean, I hope what's, that what's, what's artful about the New Yorker is that its sophistication is all hidden mm-hmm. in simplicity. Yep, and it's always been that way. I think they've kept this tone that oh, yeah. Ross was going for from the very beginning. They've kept it through today. Yeah, and so I think two of the most fascinating articles I've read recently that I would recommend people go and read. Mm-hmm. There was one about this guy who just lived in a canoe and he would go up and down the Hudson Bay, and it was about this writer who was living near the creek, so it had a very Thoreau style to it. Mm -hmm. But how this guy in this canoe would just pass back and forth through his life and the stories he would hear from this Mm -hmm. guy. It was fascinating. And then the other recent article that I read was about this guy who tried to follow um, Shackleton's expeditions into Antarctica. Yeah. Did you see this article? I saw the canoe one. I don't know if I saw the Shackleton. It was really good. And this guy, he he was so obsessed with Shackleton and the elements of leadership and manly leadership that Shackleton had that he wanted to be Shackleton his whole life. And so this was actually pretty recent. He just died recently after an expedition in Antarctica. And so the article was about him. And I really, I mean, it's just... One of the things that you can that I love about The New Yorker is you can pick up at least when it's good. And part of the reason why I unsubscribed is that it felt like things were sort of going downhill. Yeah, right. But The New Yorker at its best is a magazine you can pick up and you can read a a headline and see what an article is about and think that looks completely boring and uninteresting as a topic or a subject. And yet you can trust that it's going to be interesting, engaging, and you're going to learn something and it's going to be a fun, enjoyable, pleasurable read. And human. They'll always find the story. If you like things like... Very human interest driven. I mean, maybe our readers know things like This American Life or Serial. I might compare it to something like that. It's very NPR. NPR wants to be the New Yorker. Yeah, it's the New Yorker of radio. They want to find that. Yeah. I think think 99% Invisible is a really good example because for our listeners who don't know, it's a really fantastic podcast. Right. It's only like 20-minute episodes. It's about like design or design features or the most bizarre random little things. The whole conceit is the, the daily things that you take for granted that are almost entirely invisible to your eye because you see them all the time. What's the story behind that? How did that come to be? And they always tell it in this very wonderful human interest story way that makes it really compelling, you know, down to like fonts on traffic signs. Right. Where did they come from? It sounds like a boring, dumb thing, but they 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 make it this beautiful human interest story that's mm-hmm. really interesting and compelling. And that's like every New Yorker piece. Yep. Yeah. They always hire writers who know how to write very cleanly mm-hmm. and engagingly. So And then they spend or like keep a editors year developing yes. these articles and editing them. That's right. Their editors are fantastic. Them. And yeah, I remember reading an article once about somebody was talking about how long it took 
their article to get through editing. Mm-hmm. And it was like a over a year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Early in the days of Warhorn Media, me and Jake became very jealous because we just realized we are never going to have the resources to be able to pull something off. Like the amount of money and time and effort that they're able to It's so perfect. And you can twist yourself in knots mm-hmm. aspiring to that level of perfection until you realize one of those articles in that magazine, every one of those articles has been in editing for between six to 18 months. Yeah, and probably a team of people devoted their lives to it. Yeah, and, and they've got a magazine editors. and it comes out bi-weekly mm-hmm. full of articles like that with separate teams devoted to, and it's just like, yep. and then you have authors that are proud enough that, they think they need to try to live up to that standard. It's just not possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not going to live up to that standard. No. E.B. White himself didn't live up to that standard. He had the editors at The New Yorker to help him, mm-hmm. and he became an editor at The New Yorker. And so the story is, is he sent some stuff in. He would send these things into The New Yorker. First, he was being published in The Talk of the Town, that sort of opening mm-hmm. segment to The New Yorker. He came into the office and met this lady named Catherine Angel who would become his wife. Mm -hmm. And she quickly championed his work, introduced him to Harold Ross, and then the rest is history. He became one of the most prominent writers weekly writers for the New Yorker. And he did something and also an editor. to talk to talk of the town, like current events kind of commentary. Yeah. Which traditionally, in my time at least, has been one of the part places where the New Yorker is the weakest. They can develop these yeah. long term these articles over a year and they they'll be fantastic. But anytime they try Anything and take that's on it's like really current or just the little, you know, bullety. But E. B. White was really good at that. I've read his stuff like even his stuff that doesn't make it into the essay collections, just the, the kind of talk of the town type stuff he wrote, like he was really fantastic. I, I don't know whether he he probably wasn't proud of all of it, actually, I bet, because he probably had to do some of it with quick turnaround and all he did. that. I'm just yeah. guessing. Yeah, he was disappointed in a lot of what he had to do there. It's clear but, that he's the inspiration for anybody that does that kind yeah, of thing Yeah, well, the, the point is, is he and Catherine, who would become his wife, and Harold Ross together with a few others, uh, James Thurber, who would be very influential in the cartoons that became prominent in The New Yorker. Famous for what's the short story that everybody knows by him? Uh, oh, man. He goes places and he has an imagination. Walter Mitty. Walter Mitty, yes. That's it. I said that weird. Walter Mitty. Yep. Yes. So that's James Thurber. Mm-hmm. And then you also had Dorothy Parker. I love Dorothy Parker. And Dorothy Parker actually was a part of this group with Harold Ross called the look at it. I can't pronounce it. Algonquin Table. Algonquin Table, yeah. Yeah. And another famous person who was a part of that would have been Harpo Marx. Harpo Marx, Robert Benchley. I used to, maybe this might have been my snobbier days, but I used to love reading all those those old like humorists and wits from that era who would basically just have lunch with each other, just with these barbs prepared that they could just say to each other and all they wanted to do was wait all dinner to say that some smart, clever thing and then get the better of everyone. It's just like, it's fun. It's like reading anecdotes about Churchill or Chesterton or somebody yeah. like that. That sounds fun. Yeah. yeah. Sounds intimidating. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. It's it's kind of sad at the end of the well, day. Like, did they really have nothing better to do with their time than write jokes and to then sp- and then try all day to set each other up for them? Right. Yeah. And that's clearly what I listen sporadically to Manchester's bio of Churchill, and it's going to take me, you know, 10 years to, right. get, to get through it. But every once in a while, I'll flip it on when I've got nothing better to do. And it's just really clear that that guy, he was insecure. He didn't know how to talk to people. And mm-hmm. so he taught himself how to do it. And he practiced and he rehearsed and he learned how to set people up for right. all of his barbs that he had planned beforehand. Yeah, there's a famous story of Mark Twain being at a dinner party saying something devastatingly witty. And then afterwards, the host, I think, goes up to Mark Twain's son and is like, man, that was so witty. Mark Twain's son just turns to him and says, if you knew my dad, you'd know that he spent 
all evening directing the conversation desperately to get you to the point you would fall into his trap so he could say that devastatingly witty thing. So, <laughs> so sad. <laughs> it really is kind of sad. There's, story, there's a story of, of Churchill giving an impromptu speech mm-hmm. and, uh, to a very small crowd of 20 to 30 people and somebody coming up and cra- congratulating him on how wonderful his impromptu speech was and him saying something like, I spent three days working on that impromptu speech and it was wasted on this crowd of 20 to 30 people. Right. <laughs> you yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, great podcasters though, like us. Yeah, we don't say any witty things <laughs> off the top of our head. There's no editing. I spend no time thinking about yeah. what I'm going to say. Brandon comes in. He doesn't even know what book we're doing. I'm just like, it's yeah. E.B. White. <laughs> and I'm just like, hey, I got some stuff to say. <laughs> the New Yorker. That's The New Yorker. E.B. White became a prominent writer for them, and his tone would take on The New Yorker's tone. It would be casual. and It would be witty. Mm-hmm. It would also be this new sort of hip 20s, 30s thing, which is still hip today, irony. And it's not irony like we think of it today, though. It was more irony in the sense that you would say one thing. I was just listening to some of his essays, trying to write down examples of it. Mm-hmm. He had one, have you read the have you read the one about the hurricane the, okay. and the newscasters? He would be talking about the radio broadcasters at the time. It would be saying things like uh, the broadcaster would say, is it raining there? And then the other person would say, yes. And then he would say, fine. You know, as though he approved of a true thing having been said. Right. So just stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And you can hear the undertone of he's saying one thing, but what you're supposed to be picking up on, the vibe you're supposed to be getting is the exact opposite. Right. Right. And so the other example that I had written down was where he talks about burying his pig. It's this essay he wrote about a pig he had that became very sick with syphilis, actually. Mm-hmm. And then dies. He's just making jokes about it being ham and bacon and stuff like that, how he was going to miss out on the ham and the bacon and the pig was going to miss out on one more day and stuff like that. But the tone you're supposed to be picking up on there actually is the underlying sadness. Right. Right. And so the irony just being he's saying one thing, but the intention being something else as well. And so that's supposed to be the sophistication. It's two different tones happening at the same time. It's all over Charlotte's Web. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you as an adult have a viewpoint on Fern and her maturation and all that sort of stuff <laughs> that a, a child reading the book might not necessarily. Yeah, yeah. And, for and, the for the kids, Fern just sort of passes out of the story. Right. But for an adult, it's pretty funny. Yeah, and kind of bittersweet. Yeah. So, and we talked a lot about it with Milne, and we had some mixed feelings about Dr. A. A. Milne. I don't know. I don't remember whether he's come up this episode yet. But. Not yet. We're waiting with that cannon. It's he loaded. Likes, well, the, he liked his irony. Yeah, but it's it really is different. We'll get there. I think it is. I think it is. I don't know whether we'll get there this episode or not, but we will get there, folks. So there is that sense of irony that he had. He was also a sentimentalist. He was very fond of nature. He loved nature from an early age. His brother, in fact, was a landscaper, architect professor or something like that. A lot of this comes through in his writing. In fact, one of his, the essay on radios, actually how much he, he prides himself on the fact that he doesn't have a television. And he says that, you know, a lot of people make this out as though he's behind the times, but he actually kind of likes it. And he ends that essay talking about the glory of his wood burning stove mm-hmm. versus an electric stove, which then made me think of Wendell Berry. Yeah. But it's e. already B. making me think of Wendell Berry. Yeah, but E.B. White's different than Wendell Berry in the sense that he, he doesn't try to make himself into Gandalf, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the big difference. It doesn't feel like E.B. White has a huge chip on his shoulder about yeah. it. He's not going out on some uh, political rant about environmentalism and the need to love nature. Mm-hmm. Wendell Berry does. Right. This isn't a Wendell Berry episode. But, no. I uh, love that. 
Have you ever read the letters to the editor after you wrote that piece about writing yeah. on his typewriter? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. He's witty. He's funny. I'm going to have a lot of fun with... Cla- I won't make any more jabs at classically educated people. This episode, because I'm going to get to have all my jabs. I'm preparing them like E.B. White. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get all my jabs in when we do uh, Homer. Mm. There you go. Yeah, that's going to be fun because that is their baby. Mm-hmm. And it's really funny that that's their baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that here's the problem with classically educated people. Mm-hmm. I think that they... I- <laughs> The whole, classic, the whole classical movement, they idolize things that I don't think they ever take the time to really appreciate. They idolize the th- fact that things... Just because they're... In the Western canon, therefore they must be fantastic and you good. You have to love something before you which can is take how pride you, in it. Yeah, which is how you get people just... You have to understand it. Yes, that, that would... That, that's that's how you too. get people unquestionably just loving A. A. Milne, for mm-hmm. example. For example. <laughs> it falls right into that same sort of mindset. Everything that has this patina of oldness in the Western canon to it must be great and untouchable. And there's just, there's an ickiness to it that, um, an ickiness. Yes. There's a nastiness. It is. It is. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't mind the word so. icky. You know who I unquestionably love? Who? Our donors. Oh boy. I, you know, I haven't, <laughs> hey, before you go. say that, let me get a shot in. Yes. I, I used to see this and I don't see it so much anymore. There for a while, I was seeing constantly in my Twitter feed, people posting random pieces of artwork mm-hmm. just yeah. random pieces of artwork right from yeah. any period right yeah. thinking that by putting something beautiful on twitter twitter mm-hmm. they're going to change <laughs> you've yeah. ele- really co- elevated the conversation by putting starry yeah. night up thanks <laughs> <laughs> if they just put anything up that right. that was famous is like they did a database search and yeah. just anything that was a part of the canon they mm-hmm. put up and they had no understanding of like yeah. if it was good if yeah. it was beautiful, why? Why they should or should not have put it up? What it was yeah. actually communicating? Nothing at all. Mm-hmm. No like a, knowledge of the artist whatsoever yeah. behind Some freshman it. Freshman in his when dorm with the screen. It's, it's, everything about it was sophomoric. Yeah. yeah, everything about it was sophomoric. You just look at it like when appreciating real beauty can be hard work. Appreciating it is hard work. Yeah, appreciating the honesty is going to be hard work, even though it's fantastic. But I think the best example recently for us has been Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. It's hard work to actually talk about why Shakespeare is Yeah, as we've good had trouble. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard work and it's worth doing, but You know who does the hard work of appreciating our beauty? Our donors. Oh yeah. <laughs> True enough. <laughs> I think we should take a take a moment here to give them a shout out. What do you say, boys? Sounds good. Let's do it. All right. Why don't we start with the mysterious Professor X. Professor X. Why don't we move from there onto Catherine the Lovebird. Eric and Catherine the Lovebird. Let's just do kind of a cool sort of beatnik kind of. Uh, hey, hey there, Eric and Catherine the Lovebirds. Nathan, not me, man. Nathan, not Nathan. Benny T and his wife, Dana. Benny T and his wife, Dan. Benny Tiberius, that is. Hey. Then we got Jay and Katie who are cold and love cheese. Jay and Katie who are cold and love cheese. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Then we got, uh, she's never gotten a descriptor. She's just Maya. 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 Isn't that what you always do? Yeah, she always gets something exciting, but she's never got a descriptor. (sighs) Uh, And a woman near and dear to my heart. Actually, Maya wrote the closest to an E.B. White style essay for us. Yeah, she did. It's quite good. anybody in one of our classes. She was in our class. Oh, and near and dear to my heart, my beloved mother, Beth. Nathan's beloved mother, Beth. I'm going to put some beatnik snapping behind this, I think. And now we're in West Side Story. (laughs) (laughs) John and Jill, the lovebirds. John and Jill, the lovebirds. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Robert and Rhonda, 
the lovebirds. The inscrutable Jenny Z. The inscrutable Jenny Z. Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds. And my text that I actually got while we were recording this says, little baby Timothy James. Andrew and Esther, is that what it was? Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds. Andrew and, and Esther, little the lovebirds. And little baby Timothy James. Six libs, eight Congratulations. ounces. Nineteen and a quarter inches. Six libs. Gotta love those libs. Mother right. and baby doing great. Beautiful. He's nice. got some blonde, like a James Bond villain blonde hair. Whoa. Uh-oh. That's nice. Oh, and our new favorite, Lily of the Valley. Lily of the Valley. Thank you, Lily. We appreciate your support. Um, well, thank you for your your patronage, folks. We really appreciate it. La, 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 lovely Lily. That's a song by Paul McCartney of Wings fame. So That's what I know him from. <laughs> well, that song is by <laughs> from the era of yeah, Wings yeah, fame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> the great m- Wings musician, <laughs> Paul McCartney. Uh, that song really goes la 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 lovely Linda, based on the great Linda Eastman, the wife of Paul McCartney. Now, Brandon, I'm sorry we had to interrupt you to tell our patrons we loved them, but that's... what were we talking about? Irony, flippancy. Yeah, well, we were talking about New Yorker than the irony, and um... yeah, and so just to jump right back in, then yeah. we're kind of doing this kind of through his biography, but then also chasing the rabbit trails, yeah. which he liked animals, yeah. so that's appropriate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he digresses quite a bit in his yeah. essays, actually. Digression is the soul of something or other, somebody said. Yeah, something. Mm-hmm. It was in the 1920s, then you have the Great Depression, but the New Yorker kind of suffered the f- success. You can't really suffer success. Mm-hmm. It had the success of a lot of movies at that period, meaning that people turned to the New Yorker like they turned to movies mm-hmm. for a sense of escape, basically. Mm-hmm. Pro tip, um, watch Swing Time. Starring Astaire and Rogers. It's the best movie to escape to during, their, during that era. Actually, the New Yorker thrived and became very wealthy and made the whites very wealthy. In fact, to keep them on, Ross, if I'm doing my calculations right, ended up paying them the equivalent to like $500,000 each. Now, if I'm doing my math right, Whoa. that means they were making a million dollars a year? Yeah, I mean, they were making enough money that they were able to maintain their flat in New York City, mm-hmm. purchase a farmhouse in Maine, and then also have another flat like in the southern part of New York City. Mm-hmm. So they were doing During quite the well. Depression. Yeah, doing quite well for themselves. That's kind of the story of his turn to success. Just a quick note about there were other magazines at the same time that were becoming popular. And it, it is interesting to look at these magazines as shaping American literary history. Mm-hmm. And so you can't understate, you can't overstate. What am I trying to say? You can't overstate. You can't overstate. You can't understate. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't overstate how influential the New Yorker was in shaping American literary history. And so, like I already, I mentioned J.D. Salinger was published by The New Yorker, I think before he published Catcher in the Rye. John Updike, who became a very prominent figure in American letters. Fantastic writer, quite a bit like E.B. White. Kind of a similar story, too. He wasn't necessarily, he didn't like, they're not academic writers, pretty much is Mm. the point you'll, uh, with The New Yorker. And so they had their own tone, their own style of writer they championed. And then you would have other magazines, like The Atlantic was becoming popular at the same time. They would publish another style of writing. Mm-hmm. You would have other magazines and these journals that would start coming out that would be publishing uh, the Beatnik Poets, that would be publishing Flannery O'Connor, sure. was publishing a lot in the Southern Review. And so these magazines were the outlet for a rising form of literary genre, the essay, and also the short story. And The New Yorker would champion both of these, and they would become very American modes of writing and mm-hmm. the craft of writing. They had a very happy marriage. 
She was a divorcee, but they moved to Maine together. Brought a couple kids with her, didn't Brought she? a couple kids from that former marriage. Her husband was a high-profile lawyer. They ended up getting divorced, and he became the president of ACLU, I think. Huh. She and E.B. White would spend most of their time in their little farmhouse in Maine. And that's important because it's at that farmhouse that E.B. White would start to raise animals, where he would have the sheep and see the spider, have the swing in his barn, and all these things that would eventually give him the sort of lamppost like in C.S. Lewis's Narnia. Narnia. Right, It would give him that image that would be the inspiration for Charlotte's Web. Mm -hmm. And so this gets us into the last period of E.B. White's life, which is 40 years into his life, where he would finally start writing children's literature. Mm -hmm. And so the first book he wrote was Stuart Little. He got the idea from a dream. <laughs> he dreamed about this little mouse character. And it's, fun. it's an interesting story surrounding the production and publication of Stuart Little. Because the article you mentioned earlier. The article I mentioned, yeah. And so then I guess we can just take a quick step back, since that's kind of how we're handling it this time, mm-hmm. and look at children's literature at the time. We've had episodes before on children's literature, mm-hmm. but this is a very interesting moment in children's literary history. Because we talked a lot in, was it the episodes for... We did Boys of Blur and then Boys of Blur. The Newberry kind of stuff. Yeah, it was the episode surrounding Boys of Blur where we talked about the fact that young adult literature was kind of created mm-hmm. by the Newberry and stuff after that. Yeah. That up until that point, young adult as a category did not exist. Well, childhood as a category was created basically in the Victorian era. era That's right? right. The whole idea of... The nostalgia that we have yeah. around childhood. Dickens was very prominent in that role, but it's interesting because if you look at Jane Austen and then you look at Dickens, you see the different ways they handle children. Yeah and the way they either idolize children or don't idolize children, right? And so this whole concept of youthfulness, this was a genre that was coming into existence, right? And the whites positioned themselves against it. They did not like that sort of stance of young adult literature. In fact, Catherine Angel, or Catherine White, we'll just call her Catherine White from now on because she took on his surname. She thought that you sh- basically you shouldn't look down on, you shouldn't condescend to children that way, mm-hmm. that a good children's book was a good book, which is an argument we've heard before. C.S. Lewis made the same argument, right? right? That a good children's book is a good book. It just happens to be for children, but an adult's going to appreciate a good children's book. And in fact, a great deal of our unease with our nemesis, Mr. Milne, came from the fact that he very much feels like... Yeah, and this is actually where A.A. Milne enters into the arena. Mm. And so you have E.B. White one side, A.A. Milne the other, and in his corner you also have this lady named Anne Carroll Moore, right? Now, Anne Carroll Moore is an interesting person because she was the founder pretty much of the children's section to a library mm-hmm. in New York in New York and which meant pretty much to any library right right so she kind of established the category of children's literature in an era when libraries yeah. as a thing as a public sort of utility yeah. or whatever you want yeah. to call it, were coming into their own the quote I had in my mind that I was trying to remember was when Catherine Angel said why do, should children have children's shelves like books with children's shelves shouldn't, shouldn't they just have bookshelves mm-hmm. right her point being that as soon as a child gets to the age of 12 or 13 they're going to find Jane Austen, she said, for girls and Dickens for boys. And a a child who has a good head on their shoulders, they're going to find good literature. Mm -hmm. It's not like there's young adult literature for them. And it just made her really mad that people tried to categorize things that way. Especially people trying to to write to 
the specific age group of like 12 to 14. Exactly. It's, it's just, like the dumbest thing ever in her mind, yeah. 12 to 14. And so this lady, Anne Moore, she seemed to have good intentions, but she actually does come to become the nurse ratchet of this story mm-hmm. because she helped create and found these, uh, what everybody sees when you go into a library nowadays, the whole children's section mm-hmm. and what our library today has where it's, it's almost big. the entire first floor. Yeah, and you bring in storytellers, you bring in dogs, you bring in all you these... You make it a section where children can actually be, where they can make noise, you put pictures up that yep. they will enjoy. Exactly, and she was she was fundamental and important in establishing that mm-hmm. character to that section of the library, which I think is good. Sure. I like that. Fan of that. But. But, and she sounded like an interesting woman, so they would have Irish Poetry Day when they were mm-hmm. celebrating all the different... Because New York was the melting pot, right? and so she said that she thought that each of these kids should be able to experience their culture... At a time when a sentiment, conservative American sentiment, would have run towards not giving any sort of weight or glory or appreciation to the culture that she came from in Europe or wherever. She was she was kind of proto-multicultural and said, you know, we should, and not not in a cheesy or bad way, I don't think. She just said, you know. She just thought it would be a nice sentiment. Let's celebrate St. Patrick's Day for crying out loud. Let's, it's it's But she also then developed some very hard and fast rules in what she thought a children's book should do. Mm -hmm. Apparently she wrote a children's book, which was pretty bad. She had a puppet that she liked to carry around. And And so this is kind of where she starts out innocent enough, but her hubris takes over Mm -hmm. and she kind of becomes the nurse, like I said, the nurse ratchet character. Her fatal flaw, yeah. Her fatal flaw, her hubris Mm -hmm. comes out and it just begins to corrupt her. And she becomes the enemy because she was influential in convincing E.B. White to write Stuart Little. She bugged him. She, she wrote bugged him. She said, you need to do this. You need to do him, this, yeah. right? And so he did. He started to write this book. And he said, he has a famous essay called Children's Books where his wife would edit a lot of children's novels. And so their house would just be full of these books because mm-hmm. they worked for Harper's as well. Well, she reviewed, she reviewed them, them for the, the New Year. That's right. She had like the year. That's right. He 500 worked for copies a year or something right. like yeah, that. Yeah. So they would just be flooded. And he got to the point where he was just tired of them. He was sick of them. And what he was especially sick of was condescending, maudlin, maudlin sentiment mental tone that a lot of these books would have. And he thought that children deserve better, basically. Mm-hmm. That you and can have higher expectations of children. Yeah. And so he has a quote that I love. He said that he thought that it sounded like it could be fun to write to children, and it might actually be something that would be basically something that would be serious work. Mm-hmm. Right. And then he actually got to the point in some of his letters where he says that he was scared. He thought, this sounds like this is going to be serious and kind of scary work, mm-hmm. which is similar to the sentiments you get from a lot of the writers that I respect, like The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. When J.R.R. Tolkien wrote The Hobbit, he kind of had the same feelings about it, right? It's a serious stuff you're doing. You're not just writing to children. You're trying to write a good book that just so happens to have a story that's going to appeal to children. A little bit right? different than the sentiment of Mr. Milne, who's like, I can't believe everybody wants me to write another yeah, book for children. We're getting there. We're getting there really close <laughs> to that point. So E.B. White was in this corner over here with Lewis. You want to imagine them as all kind of rocky characters. Mm-hmm. They're getting ready. Yeah. They're over there. Lewis and, is, what's his name? The, the old yeah. guy. The, and oh, so, skip. Mickey. Yeah. What they're convinced of is that there are certain things that appeal to children. Fantasy, fable, long history of fable with animal stories. True. Mil- that's what White was going to tap into when he wrote his stories. Those things appeal to children because, you know, children like the imagination, the fantasy that is involved with that. But you don't write down to children, right? Then you have in the other side where you have this created world of the child, which as innocent as it was with Anne Moore, you know, having joined her would be A.A. Milt. Boo. These people who make it a point 
to talk down to children mm-hmm. and condescend to children and be grossly sentimental and childish in the ways that they think that children need to have emotions handed to them on like a plate, mm-hmm. right? The worst of Dickens does the same thing. Sure. But Dickens is never quite that bad. <laughs> Dickens is coming up. But yeah, we'll get there. And so then this becomes a war. As soon as Stuart Little's published, Anne Moore says it, it's like she writes this letter to... Harper saying, you can't publish this because at the time, librarians had a lot of power. In fact, there was one funny story about this one lady. She sat on Grapes of Wrath, literally put it under her chair and sat on it so that it would not be circulated. Checked out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Carol Moore convinced libraries not to carry the book. That's right. And so she and waged been, a war. She, not only had she been pushing White to write this article for years and years and years, she had been prepared to own it as her special baby that she had brought to light by pushing E.B. White. Like it was going to be the greatest thing. It was going to be her triumph that she yeah. got the great E.B. White to write the great children's book. That, mm-hmm. And then, and then, she, then she, just, she just went all out warfare against it. turned on him. He had not done what he was supposed to. And you can see it because... What Anne Carroll Moore was like is she's like, she's this woman who thinks that she understood children and the whole children fantasy world yeah, and that she was some protector fairy of it. Well, the article literally says, just so people know about this woman, she had either a puppet or a marionette that she carried that she took from place to place that she put on little shows for the kids. She wrote her children's book, which is really cheap and cheesy, about this puppet. I forget what its name was, like Rupert the Great or something. It's like Nicholas. Nicholas, yeah. She she finally left the the puppet in a taxi, and the article just says something like, all of her employees, no one was sorry that (laughs) it had been left in the taxi. Yeah, she's... And so here she was, and then um, in the other camp you had, oh, what was E.B. White's editor? Ursula. Ursula something. She, um, well, she was a she famous- She died before- Before Charlotte Charlotte's Web, Web, right? Yeah, but she I was the big, she was the champion of E.B. White. She was a very respected editor, and she's known for having championed quite a few children's authors. In fact, that's part of the best parts of the story of Charlotte's Web. Oh, what was her name? We got to remember her name. It with an M, doesn't it? Yeah. Ursula Nordstrom, like Nordstrom's jewelry. Yes. So, or Ursula Nordstrom. She would be behind quite a few like Newbery award-winning books later on. She was like Anne Moore in that she established the children's publication wing of Harper's. And when uh, Stuart Little became very famous, 50,000 copies were sold, and then they had to do another run. Another 50,000 copies were sold immediately. It just became a huge hit. So Anne Moore was defeated, and Ursula Nordstrom, Harper's came to her and said, "You maybe you want to think about publishing adult books now. And she was very offended, right? And so Ursula, she was just the perfect editor-in-chief for this group of people over in E.B. White's corner, people who took children's literature seriously enough to think that you're not writing down to children, you're writing literature mm-hmm. that just so happens to tell a story that children love, right? And so this would carry us right through. So this was published in 1945. Charlotte's Web was in 1952, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And immediately established E.B. White as a beloved children's author. But it's interesting because he was 40 at the time he wrote Stuart Little. He did not set himself out to be a children's author. He saw a need for good children's literature. He said, this might be important work to do. He had this idea of this mouse. And there are some funny stories around it like, oh, Ross, Harold Ross, the editor of The New Yorker, as soon as Stuart Little was written, came up to him and said that he loved the book, but he made one fatal mistake. He should have had Stuart be adopted and not one of the children. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he just hated that fact. (laughs) That is really weird. Um, Edmund Wilson, who's 
was just he this really white actually took that advice and changed it in a later revision, right? I think that's right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you're right. Edmund Wilson, who's a famous academic critic, he was just disappointed that it wasn't more in the style of Kafka. <laughs> <laughs> so, can we make this a monstrosity what, that everybody uh, is no. terrified of? There's one thing children's literature needs to do: it's embrace the existential <laughs> nightmare that is existence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But um, what I love about White, and so there's not a whole lot more to say about him. He would live out the rest of his life in this little farmhouse with his family. A lot of the experiences he would have at the farmhouse, he would write into Charlotte's Web. And when he died, his son saw to it that his house was not to be used as an uh, E.B. White, I keep wanting to say A.A. Milne, Mm. E.B. White Museum. But this, uh, this book here ends with a nice little vignette. It's... They opened it up once. The family that he sold it to opened it up once to a group of school children to come and see. They were actually an impoverished school that had raised money. And the one thing they wanted to do was come and see where E.B. White had written Charlotte's Web. Mm-hmm. So they let them come. And then his son actually was there and read some. And so it has this nice little image at the end of this book where it said, so they were listening to an E.B. White recording. And then as soon as it was done, the son read and it said the voice was basically the same. So the idea being the child carries on mm-hmm. the father's legacy, which obviously is Charlotte Webb's main point too, right? The children carrying on their mother. So his life was simple. Yeah. He lived in Maine. He died. I think a canoe hit his head. <laughs> I'm sorry. sorry. It's, it's kind of an awful way to die. Poor guy. But he loved to farm as he became more famous and he wasn't as bound to the New Yorker responsibilities. He would actually not produce as much. Mm -hmm. He liked to be out in his field working. He liked to be planting. He liked to be working with his animals. So a lot of the things you read in Charlotte's Web came from actual experience. He has a famous line where somebody, he said that everybody quits accusing him of going to Maine as escapism when they see the hours that he puts in. Right. And so he just loved the life that he lived there with his wife, Catherine, and their children. He would write one more children's book, The Trumpeter Swan, or The Trumpet of the Swan. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yes. In 1970. I think I've read, but I don't remember. I've never read that one. But he has, so these are the three books that he's known for, Stuart Little, Charlotte's Web, The Trumpet of the Swan, great New Yorker essayist, king of wit, king of this clean prose, and I'm sure we'll talk more about Strunk and White. Um, I guess it is worth noting that in 1959, when he was already very famous, he was approached and asked if he would be willing to write the introduction to a volume of Strunk's Rules for Writing. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, he loved Strunk, and he remembered the book. So he wrote his introduction, made some changes, wrote a final chapter on writing himself, and that's where we get the book Strunk and White. I think two million copies were sold almost immediately. And it's uh, the preeminent style guide. Anytime I teach a class on writing, I always have students read Strunk and White and Zinzer's book. I wish we could do it for the bookening. I don't know if we'll ever actually do it for the bookening because that might be a little weird, but I think we could almost do it because it's just wonderful. Yeah. And so a nice little fill in. You know, if we're going to do this, this is May and we we may get two. Probably only going to get one more on Charlotte's Web. Two episodes out of Charlotte's Web. I wouldn't be opposed to throwing in a. Yeah, that'd be fun. You want to just do it? Yeah, let's do Strunk and White. Let's do Strunk and White. So we'll talk about that in another episode. Let's not talk about it. I'd rather do that than review the animated version of Charlotte's Web to fill in. Great. So we're going to do Strunk and White, so I don't have to talk anymore about that. Yeah, we'll get there. <clears throat> because my context is already going really long. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> E.B. White, witty, socialite in New York, but kind of a homebody, wants to be in the country. Mm-hmm. He writes these children's books because he sees a need for it, and he never grows bitter over it. Mm-hmm. This is like what he wants to do, and this is what makes him famous. He doesn't become bitter over it. He becomes known as the writer of Charlotte's Web. I was surprised when I found out E.B. White later on in life, because I think 
I've given my uh, baggage for this book before. Mm-hmm. I knew E.B. White as the writer of Charlotte's Web. I was yep. surprised to find out that he was a witty New Yorker and that he helped found the New Yorker of all things. Right. Yep. Right? Blew my mind, too. <clears throat> that there was a book called Strunk and White where he taught people how to write. I didn't that even know it was the me. same guy. Yeah. Yeah, like, exactly. I didn't either. I didn't put two and two together. When it, I, I think when I first read Strunk and White, I never put two and two together I remember, that this could be the same I remember guy. this. I've talked about this professor before. I think I was actually an undergrad, and he pointed out to me, that you know, that's E.B. White of Charlotte's Web. And I'm like, what? Hmm. I was really surprised. So what's the missing ingredient then that produces the other camp where you get what we've said? Humility. A.A. Milne, yeah. Yeah, that's, thanks. That's the missing ingredient. <laughs> that E.B. White has that... That A.A. Milne didn't have. Because A.A. Milne, as we've said, was bitter his entire life. You could read... A, I would not have been surprised to have learned that A.A. Milne was a founder of the New York... You know, yeah, A.A. Milne wanted would to would not be. have, like... He's funny and he He's signaling everywhere he can his, his sophistication yeah. and his... You don't get any of that in Charlotte's... Not as a kid. Yeah. Now, as, as an adult. It's sophisticated. It is sophisticated. But there's a but it's love. it's that New Yorker style of sophisticated in its simplicity yeah. kind of thing that's just, there's a humility to that sort of thing that's beautiful. And he loved, yeah. like you can tell, he loves Fern. He doesn't begrudge her, her uh, I hate the her, word maturation, her, 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 he, her whatever you want to call it. it her growing infatuation with, 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 what, with uh, Henry the, or whatever his Henry name is. Henry yeah. Boggs or whatever Henry Grossier or whatever. There's just a real affection for the period without being maudlin about it. It's 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 a beautiful book. We'll talk about it more next episode. But um, yeah, but the, yeah, there's a beauty, there's a simplicity, there's a humility to it. Mm-hmm. For whatever flaws E.B. White had, and obviously he was going to have some. He has to. He's and anybody can figure it out just listening to this context. He had none of the disadvantages anyone else had. Lived his entire life, kind of a life of ease. All these things, and they're going to produce the problems that you would expect they would produce. He was fearful. He was anxious. anxious. My favorite, and I find it quite endearing, the story is that people that loved his work would come and visit the New Yorker offices, as they would anybody, and they would they would be waiting for him in the lobby, and he would take the fire escape and yeah, go down the window just to get away because he didn't want to meet people. Completely sympathize um, with that. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't we all just love to take the fire yeah. escape sometimes? There's a story where his face was sunburned one night, and he thought he was dying of a brain tumor, mm-hmm. and so he like wrote his farewell letter to his wife and sat down and kind of had a nervous breakdown on the bed. So, I mean, he had issues. Well, he was, but, <laughs> but you gotta love him. He was inseparable. Somebody wrote, one of their friends said, this guy was never apart from his wife. It was impossible to imagine them, them not being together. Yeah, that's just um, really sweet. And I just like the, I feel like of all the authors we've done, maybe he's the one that I know on a personal level the least. Like he did not really give himself to people. And I respect that. Like he was private and that's fine. I don't need to know what was going on behind the scenes with him. You respect him through what he's written. Yeah. And so I think the final. That certain piece of himself, but he gave us a lot of himself in other places. Yeah. But why I mentioned that in particular, there's a quote that I sent to you guys that his wife so when they were reviewing books, she said the following about Babar. Yes. So you need to know that Babar was written by a guy named de Bruinhoff. Mm-hmm. Babar the Elephant. If yeah, you, Babar the Elephant. Referring. He's officially blessed by A.A. A. Milne in a prefatory paragraph, an unnecessary and misleading condescension, since de Bruinhoff is witty without being poohish, and Babar is an elephant who can stand on his own two feet. <laughs> I liked that because it shows that they were on to A.A. Milne. <laughs> <laughs> they knew that there was something off about him. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in that article, you can go and read it. 
Dorothy Parker has a really funny thing she says about. Oh, she tears them to shreds. She yeah, she really did not like A.A. Milne. Yeah. Dorothy Parker hated life and everyone. She was a pretty <laughs> yeah. poison type. But that made lady. her pretty funny. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what they, I think what they were catching on to there is that A.A. Milne had a condescension which made, which poisoned his work. It made it where it wasn't the kind of children's literature that E.B. White was out to write. And you see it play out in their lives. Imagine Christopher Robin, imagine Christopher Milne reading fondly the Pooh stories to a group of school children at his childhood home after his father has passed away. He's not going to do it. Mm-hmm. However, Joel White came back and he read his father's stories to a group of school children. If there's any argument and if there's any way to end this rambling essay that we've had today mm-hmm. about E.B. White, I think that's the perfect sort of little vignette to end on right there. Yeah. His E.B. White son fondly looking back on his father and loving him. And, and loving so, his father's stories. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And his father's yeah. stories. Reading his father's stories to his father as his father was dying. They had a sweetness to their relationship that I think just makes me love Milne, not Milne, <laughs> makes me love White. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> gotta be careful. Keep saying that. Makes me love White even more and kind of has cauterized some other impressions that I have of other things. So. <laughs> <laughs> In your face, Milne. The Booking Today was written and produced by, yeah, it was really written by Brandon pretty much with some discursions by Nathan and by Jake. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. Jake, we got a new donor reward, right? Yeah, $25 level. Go on to patreon.com forward slash the booking. Check it out. We've always had a $25 level. We haven't offered anything special no. except the title yeah. for that. But now we have something super cool. Very special. That you really want to check out. So here's the deal. At $25 or higher. So we have several supporters at the $50 level, like uh, five or six supporters at the $50 level, like nobody at the $25 level. So, and a number of people at the $10 level. $25 and up from now on, at the end of every year, the bookening is going to have its own special t-shirt that we're going to make. And we'll put any quote on it uh, that all of our $25 and up supporters decide on. Mm. So you can pull a quote, nominate a quote from any episode, yeah. Brandon, Jake, Nathan, nice. whoever. Whatever you want. And then the we'll famous, vote. What's the famous one? The the, the something said? about pro- the prosaic matrimony is the something necessity to keep the bots whatever. Yeah, no, to keep it, the bots away. I was yeah. trying to summarize uh, Stephen Baker. I think yes, yeah. yes, but you, but it is my quote. It is you did such a great yeah. job. So 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 nominate the quote, nominate a quote, and then vote on it. And at the end of the year, we'll have a specially designed T-shirt. You'll get the T-shirt at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Everyone else. They'll have to like pay cold hard cash for that T-shirt. Yeah. Well, and they won't have any say in what goes on yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Just those just have to fork over their cash for some quote they might not even like. But you, <laughs> maybe we'll get some some people to jump in because you know the the T-shirts will be cool. We promise you that. Yeah, no, they'll be awesome. We'll get some. We'll do some good design work. I will have nothing to do with the design work. If you've seen my design work, then you'll know that we've got a some good designers around. More yeah, media. we've got some. We've got some good designers. We'll get one of them to do it. They're great, um, and I be, love all Patreon supporters. Yeah, no. Oh, yeah, the five dollar, hundred dollar, one dollar, one dollar, whatever you want to do. Penny. All your fifty dollar supporters, you just now you get a t shirt on top of your book, yeah, yeah, and to get you get a say in. So maybe it's actually an enticement to jump into the fifty dollar camp. Yeah, you get a fantastic book, fantastic.
fantastic quotes that we write in the book and uh, fantastic t-shirt. Get a personalized book a month and a t-shirt at the end of the year and yeah. say what goes on the t-shirt. So You know what, Brandon? What? You could do? What could I do? Give to somebody. You could get the shirt and then you could give it to like your wife or your child or something. I could, man. You could wrap it up in a bow. I don't know if it'll be out in time for Christmas. I don't know how these things work, but... That'd be great. I think that's what we'll try to do. Yeah, we'll try and do it for yeah. Christmas so people can give it to their best beloved. Yeah. Um my best beloved. You can give it to Anna. Jake can give it to Amanda. I'll probably be married to, you know, some Somebody. chick by then. So I'll yeah. give it to her. And she'll be like, thank you for giving me merch from your podcast, honey. And I'll be like, you're welcome. And then we'll just dance. keep up that $143 a month. Keep the sugar coming, <laughs> m- mama. <laughs> nah, I'm just kidding. I'll, I'll make the money in our family and wear the pants. That's how I yeah. Pants, suspenders, the works. All right, folks. Anything else we, the donors need to say? We'll be back next week with some... Uh, baggage with some critical discussion of this book and Charlotte and Wilbur and all that. Templeton the Rat. Yeah. Racist overtones there <laughs> probably can discuss. Oh, probably. Alright, thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. E.B. White was a good writer and a good friend and now he's dead just like Charlotte. <laughs>